like anything in life, there's pros and cons. Sometimes I feel like we've done it the absolute hardest way. And, and in other ways, I think we've done it in a really great way. You know, I think at the starting, it came from a point of wanting to be proud of how our products were distributed. And then we saw that there was a business opportunity for a smaller distributor and that we could really provide services and offerings that others couldn't. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven leaders who not only believe it better, but actively pursue it. Better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Ian Walker, owner of Left Coast Naturals, an organic and natural food distributor and manufacturer of better ingredient brands like Hippie Snacks, among others. Hi, I'm Ian Walker. I'm the owner and president of Hippie Snacks, a better-for-you snack company based in Burnaby, and Left Coast Naturals, an organic and natural food distributor selling across Canada. Nice. Well, thanks for joining me, Ian. I'm excited to chat with you and share your story. One thing that in a recent conversation we were having that kind of struck me is your deep background in sustainability, not just yourself, but even your family <laughs> kind of goes deep across many aspects of sustainability. So I'm curious, can you share with the audience a little bit more about your background in both sustainability and food? Sure. I mean, I think my horizons have broadened on sustainability, certainly over the years. You know, I grew up spending a lot of time in the outdoors, worked as a canoe trip guide, and, you know, I would have come out of high school calling myself an environmentalist is what we kind of called ourselves in those days in the late 80s. And so I always had a real passion for the outdoors and a care for the environment. But I was also brought up around a family business. Uh, my father and his brother ran a business that our generation has some involvement with off the side, where really how you impacted the communities that you worked in, how you treated people, and how you left the earth were really important aspects of how the business was operated. And so that was kind of part of regular conversation. And I was brainwashed to some degree in good ways. <laughs> about, you know, it's sort of how you treat people, how you treat environment. And we didn't even call it sustainability in those days. It was just sort of like how you operate it, you know, how you were a good person. And so that's definitely impacted me in starting my voyage in the mid 90s in starting a business. I always knew that it needed to be something a little bit more than just a business. I'm a bit of a different cat that way. And that I just I want it to mean something. I want it to be something that I'm proud of. And so, you know, in starting this business, I didn't just want it to be some big business that I built up and sold. I wanted it to be something that had a positive impact on society. And whether I knew it or not, those lessons learned as a kid kind of, they show up. Yeah, indeed. I've got multiple of those when people ask me how I got into food. The story ends up going back to my grandmother growing up on a farm in Nebraska. And then when I came around, we were living in Colorado, but she always kept a garden in the backyard and would always cook with fresh food or she would store food away. And I just kind of learned a lot of principles from her about making stuff from real ingredients from scratch, using whatever you can and <laughs> putting it by. And so much of it comes back to those basics, doesn't it? Right. It's like treat people the way you want to be treated, you know, golden rule type stuff, do what you say you're going to do. And when it comes to food, going back to the basics of whole foods, you know, I think yeah. it's not actually as complicated as people make it sound. But the thing about sustainability that I always find interesting, it's just like life, you, as soon as we think that we've got it figured out, we're in trouble. So it's a voyage. As I said, I've been learning this since I joined this industry as a quite naive person. And 
I'll continually be learning, just like our business will never be perfect from a sustainability perspective. You know, and I think that's the struggle is that sometimes people expect perfection and we're all just trying to improve every day to be better than we were the day before. Baby steps with the right intentions and constant progress, you'll get somewhere. So you briefly touched on your business, Left Coast Naturals. So tell me a little bit more about how or why this particular business, like what got you into that business model? Why food in particular? Why the left coast (laughs) and so on? For sure. Really, I fell into this business. You know, I was fresh out of university, you know, in my mid-20s, just moved out west uh, in Vancouver and started hanging out with a friend of my brother's who happened to be going to take art design at Emily Carr and as part of that project, graphic design, he had to design a food package or he had to design a package. So he happened to be making peanut butter at home to save money because he was a starving student and, and made a package for these peanut butters. And so I was hanging out with him at the time and he said, hey, do you think maybe I could sell this product and could you help me with that? So we started making the product and selling it at a market and then stores started asking for it. And next thing you know, you wake up and you've got a business. We started as a manufacturer and we still are a manufacturer. And, you know, if you fast forward to today, we really are two businesses in one. We're a manufacturer of products, but then in the early days, no one would distribute for us. So no one would sell to the stores. So it was us driving around in our car, dropping off product out of the trunk of the car. And, and then you get a van and then you get a truck and you realize that you're losing a lot of money driving all the way to Kelowna to drop off product. You should maybe carry a bit more product. So you start distributing other people's products. And then you realize that if you're going to do that, you should actually have a business plan because it's a separate business. So we've really grown these two businesses in parallel, a manufacturing branded business that started with a brand called Skeet Nikes. And today the focus is more on a brand called Hippie Snacks. And so we make whole food snacks like cauliflower crisps, avocado crisps, almond crisps. So sort of snack crackers made from real foods. So we actually grind whole cauliflower as the base for the product. And then in parallel to that, we built a distribution business because I wanted to be proud of how my products were distributed in my backyard. And we saw there was an opportunity for somebody to be a small distributor that added a lot of value. So we act as a full service distributor, kind of like a broker, brand manager, marketing agency, distributor, all rolled into one. So we represent about 30 to 35 brands across Western Canada. And we're just expanding to distribute in the East. And then we also sell a lot of organic bulk. So if you buy organic out of a bulk bin, it's usually from us, and especially if you're in the West. So we manage those programs for stores and help curate and find the products. But really, we saw that if we're going to be in that business, we wanted to be a little bit different. We wanted to carry, we really did want to focus on organic. We wanted to focus on better for you products. And, you know, because we can have an impact on the types of foods that people eat and we can steer it in the right direction. And likewise, we love the idea that in buying bulk items, we're buying direct from farmer, having impact at the farm level and really super transparency right through to the store, really. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think what's interesting too is that a lot of distributors don't have their own manufacturing arm. A lot of manufacturers don't necessarily have their own brands. A lot of brands don't necessarily do all their own manufacturing, but somehow you've managed to do all of them. So and to some degree, it sounds like that was strategic, but it also to some degree sounds like it was an accident. But <laughs> reflecting back on it now, do you feel like that's the best business model to go for is being able to control all pieces and support 
others in the community as well? I mean, like anything in life, there's pros and cons. Sometimes I feel like we've done it the absolute hardest way. And in other ways, I think we've done it in a really great way. You know, I think at the starting, it came from a point of wanting to be proud of how our products were distributed. And then we saw that there was a business opportunity for a smaller distributor and that we could really provide services and offerings that others couldn't. And so there's definitely a business opportunity there. And both sides have benefited from that. So the distribution has benefited by the fact that we can bring innovation and some of our own brands that we own exclusively to the distribution and we can bring innovation. And the brand benefits because the distribution gives a disproportionate amount of effort to our brands and even for the other brands we represent because we've stayed small. You know, I think a lot of times in business, it's knowing what you want to be and also what you don't want to be. And so we never had the intention to be the biggest distributor. We've always had the intention just to be the best. So be a really good distributor that would be the distributor we wish we had in all regions. And so in the end, it's worked out great. I mean, the parts of the business in the early years, we did a bunch of private label and manufacturing support and distribution while we built that. And then distribution got bigger. And as we've expanded into the U.S. with our own brand, that costs a lot of money and distribution has been able to fund that. So we're in a position now where we have a very diverse revenue stream. We have sort of a bunch of legs to stand on because we do private label, we do our own brand and we do distribution and within distribution. We also do bulk. So definitely I'm the only owner of our business. We've never had to raise capital, which is pretty rare for a 25 year old Uh, business, you know, doing in the 25 million range total. So generally people have to do raises. They have to have investors and, So this slow build and this having a few legs to stand on has allowed us to fund ourselves, allow us to be patient, allowed us to also make the decisions around sustainability that maybe if we had investors or we we wouldn't have been able to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. And another thing that we touched on in a previous conversation was that by being a manufacturer yourself, you can also do some things with your products that no other manufacturer would touch like your your crisps i believe that we were talking about before made with real whole ingredients no that's that's true because so many people that you see a lot of brands of products out there but most of those people don't actually make their product so yes we're even further unique in that as a brand we actually do manufacture we do the hard work and, and make the product like i'm i'm a bit of a renaissance man that way i just like the <laughs> idea of making stuff and so yeah. it's been great as we've developed and come up with new product ideas, a lot of the times, I don't think people realize the difficulty. You know, you can make something in your kitchen and it tastes great, but to turn that into a packaged product that can sell in stores and taste great, have good shelf life, have nice packaging, present itself well, you know, hold form and taste great, not just now, but nine months from now is really difficult. And then to be able to manufacture that at a scale that you have to, to be able to sell across North America, that also is difficult because sometimes you can make things at small scale, but you can't make them at big scale or you can't get them efficient. And so that's been, you know, as I said, sometimes we do things the hard way. We've definitely learned, but a lot of the stuff we've developed these days, there's a lot of co-packers. So those are people that manufacture product for the brands. And the co-packers have all consolidated. So instead of there being lots of small co-packers, now there's very few large co-packers. And so they'll do big, long runs, and they want you to pretty much go with the standard recipe that they have. Well, a lot of the stuff we've created 
there's not even a standard machine for it. We have to take other machinery and MacGyver it to make it work, to make our product. And so yeah. any co-packer you go to, they kind of laugh. They're like, we can't make that in our equipment. There's no way. <laughs> so, you know, in the end, a lot of times we're the manufacturer because no one else can figure out how the hell to make it. And so we've just adapted that and built from there. But the beauty of that is that it's meant that we can be super innovative. We can make things with more of a whole food bent where others would be like, well, that's a lot harder. I don't know if I really want to do that. You know, can't you just use some fiber and supplement here or add flavors or because that's the easier way out. It's funny that the more processed product with more flavors, you'd think that that would be complicated, but that's actually easier. Making a great product with really few whole food items is actually way more complicated. At home, it sounds simpler because you just got to add three items, but to make something that lasts, it's difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that goes also back to the eating well is actually simple as an individual. But then, like you said, providing that at scale for people is hard. And that's why most products out there end up being garbage because the easy path is to make it out of a bunch of fillers and artificial flavors and different things like that that mimic the real ingredients but are easier to manage. Yeah, and at the end of the day, we're on kind of a path to eating. You know, I think society and people themselves are all on a path of learning more about food and eating better. And part of that is around going back to basic whole foods. You know, you, you talked earlier about, you know, your grandmother and what she served. And I do think that there's a lot of fundamental truth to that. And so, you know, we even mock ourselves, right? So we try to make the most whole food snack that you can. So for example, we make an avocado crisp. Well, we take avocado, of course, we're going to take out the skin and the pit, but the rest of the whole avocado is the base for that snack crisp cracker. And that's the first ingredient. So it's the ingredient with the most percentage in the product. So it's based off of that. And then we use other whole food ingredients on top of that. Well, that's great. But at the end of the day, what's better, eating that or just eating an avocado? And so, for example, we had a promotion in the last sort of year and a half where we would do buy three, get one free. We'll buy three of our crisps and get a free avocado because at the end of the day, avocado is better, right? You know, yeah. We're sure we're a convenient, easy way to eat that for people that are time starved or that just they like the taste, but not the texture or they just don't have the time to do it. But if we were out of business because everyone ate whole foods only and all packaged food was out of business, I think society would be better for it. So I'd be okay with those results if we helped it get there. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That reminds me of the Patagonia don't buy the shirt campaign. Or something. <laughs> yeah. It makes total sense. The idea of success for many mission driven businesses is to not need to be in business. Anymore. Yeah. But it's funny, the path pulls you like there's always a draw towards the middle what everyone else is doing or mediocre. And so there's always like every day we're kind of fending off, okay, well, it'd be easier if we didn't make it from this or we could make it a little bit cheaper. And so you're always trying to have a line in the sand on what you are and what you aren't so that you know that you're not going to cross that line. And for us, a lot of it is the first ingredient's got to be a whole food, a real food, and it actually has to be there. If it's a cauliflower crisp, cauliflower actually has to be made from cauliflower, not some token fifth ingredient. Unfortunately, the consumers don't always notice that, but that's okay. I, to me, it's about doing the right thing. Almost you hope that karmically kind of <laughs> works out for you in the end. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty impressive. It's rare to find, like I mentioned before, a product that isn't just made of a bunch of fillers with, like you said, a token 
extra ingredients that's the real ingredient that you're there buying it for the cauliflower the avocado but then you find later it's like number 10 on the ingredient list or something so i appreciate that and then you know maybe as more and more consumers learn about eating whole real food they'll also appreciate it and we've been on a voyage to kind of appreciate what people are looking for right like as we developed you know we had transitioned from the skeet nikes brand which was when we first developed, we did a lot of innovation there, but that was more creating organic snacks where there were none before. So for example, we were the first certified organic popcorn in North America and the first certified organic granola and certified organic trail mix because there literally was no organic options in the late 90s for those items. So that was what we called innovation in those days. And so that brand was built around taking conventional items and turning them into organic. And then as that matured, you now get into the mid to late 2000s, organic has now become more mainstream. Those categories have become more competitive. And so as we tried to then say, okay, what's next? We want to innovate more. And a lot of the products we're coming up with were quite progressive and it didn't really fit with the Skeet Nikes home style. It's a picture of a guy and a dog and it kind of looks more like a homemade kind of thing. And that's when we brought in hippie snacks because we felt that kind of spoke to us trying to be a little more progressive, a little bit more edgy with the products that we're coming out with, and really also celebrating the whole food aspect, because I think people would reflect on that to the name. So, But my point being that when we first brought it out, we actually focused on a lot of raw food items. So we maybe took the dial too far, because you know society may be here in the way they eat, and optimally you want them to go there. But you can't swing that far right away. You got to kind of go here and bring them to here and go here and bring them here. Well, we went to here and it was probably a step too far. You know, we brought out a bunch of raw food, vegetable clusters. So it was kind of real vegetables, dehydrated and kind of like a kale chip type idea. They tasted great and it was beautiful. You'd see the whole vegetable, but it was expensive because we were doing these whole vegetables that were organic and they were not in a format that people were used to. So we kind of had to say, okay, how can we make products that are made from whole foods that are approachable from a price point and approachable from a sort of format that people are used to? And that's where we got into doing a bit of a crisp. And so it's a cracker chip that people want to sit in front of the TV and go like this. They can, but they can still get the whole food aspect to it. So, you know, like I said about sustainability business, likewise, you're always learning and adapting and kind of finding where you fit the best. Yeah. Speaking of which, I know one of your taglines or, or catchphrases or something like that was failing to save the planet since 1996, but still trying <laughs> yeah. something to that effect. So speaking of constantly learning, what are some of the biggest obstacles you've faced while trying to save the planet? You know, I talked about how I came out of high school and, and university as a bit more of an environmentalist. And I think I always like to remind people that, you know, when we started in this, I kind of felt like we knew that we wanted to have a business that did well for the earth. And so, you know, that's why we went right to organic products. So we were an early organic pioneer, one of the first certified organic products in Canada. And so we really went to that early. So we focused on that and we focused on the environmental side of sustainability. Of course, there's three pillars to sustainability. So there's the planet or environmental or people, and then there's people or society or the societal impacts. And then there's the economic, which has to kind of drive it. And so we really focused on the environmental side and kind of it was more like, a, let's create a laundry list of the things that we can do to green our business. So it's kind of an old school prototypical thing. Okay, how do we minimize waste? How do we minimize energy? How do we minimize packaging? 
How do we lower our carbon footprint? You know, so you're thinking about some of these things, but doing it without the research really killed us. So one of the earlier things that we did was we got a cradle to grave carbon footprint done on our products. And that was a real eye opener. That was where we learned, oh, wow, you know, we've focused a lot on energy use and packaging, but actually the biggest contributor to footprint for this product is how the food is actually grown. So Mm -hmm. that was 55% of the footprint. So what kind of tillage practices and irrigation methodologies and water source and riparian area protection. And, you know, we learned all these things that, you know, we sort of knew, but we didn't know they had that big an impact. And then 25% was trucking transport. So from farm to processing, processing to us, us to distributor, distributor to store, store to home, all those have added up to 25%. So those two factors added up to 80%. So it seemed like, isn't that where we should be digging in? So, you know, we started to really dig in there, but some of those things are really complicated things to talk about. You know, a lot of people don't understand the no-till practice or it's not sexy to talk about what kind of drip irrigation you're using and how that's less water. So those are things that we did, but we didn't talk about it a ton. At the same time, we realized that a big part of it is also the society, understanding workers and communities that you operate in. And really, that was a big part of it. And some of the things we were doing, but we weren't really maybe doing in a formal sense or even thinking of it as sustainability, especially as you know, you get into, say, 2010, when we became a founding Canadian B Corp, that was a way for us to kind of measure how we were doing in all those areas and make sure that we were looking at the full scope around what we were doing in the other areas of impact. So that was a really big one for us was understanding those things and pulling that kind of so that you're looking at all aspects. And then coming back to your question, what have been the challenges? I think some of the challenges have been, A, getting information on what actually has impact. I think consumer perception continues to be a challenge. There is reality and there's consumer perception. So the biggest one by far is that packaging is all consumers want to talk about. And it's actually 2% of our entire footprint. So, you know, we've spent a lot of heartache and time trying to figure out better packaging when if we just focused on irrigation method or tillage practice, we'd have like a 5x impact compared to packaging. So, but it's one of these things where consumers want to be heard and you can't tell them they're wrong. It doesn't go over well. So that's something that I really struggle with in that there's things that have true impact where you're actually doing it for the right reasons and you're not kind of doing tokenism where you're just trying to please people or popularism. So you're trying to do those while you're also trying to just do some things that will please people, even staff, right? They're like, oh, I want to do this. And we have to even educate them. So I think the perception, fighting perception is a reality. Number two is that a lot of these things are complicated. It's kind of like, you know, look at how long it took people to understand what the hell organic is. And that's a pretty simple concept. Still working on it. (laughs) It's not that hard or GMOs, but then you try to come into it around all the full scope impact and all the factors that come into that, consumers are like, wow, hold it. I'm just here to buy a bag of chips. (laughs) So trying to create that conversation and, you know, especially as a small business, we have limited resources, right? We have limited impact and limited resources. We try to definitely punch above our weight as far as steering the consumer to the right products and, and educating them about stuff. But there's only so much we can do. So that part is difficult in that, you know, I want society to be over here but they're still here and we're trying to drag them along and many others are doing the same thing, but it takes a while. So I find that to be a challenge. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And as you were talking, I was just realizing that, and I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier, but with consumers focusing a lot on packaging, it makes total sense because even though it's, in your case, I think you said 2% of the impact, for them, it's a huge percentage of what's in their control because they buy all this food and they throw all this packaging in the garbage or it gets recycled or it gets composted. But so for them, like all the other pieces that they don't have control over how you're growing it or anything else is great. They hope that you're doing the right thing, but for them, they want to be empowered to do the right thing on their end. So you making something that they can recycle or compost instead of have to throw away makes them feel empowered and like they're part of the solution because then they're participating. I hear you there, but I actually would politely disagree in that consumers make choices. So every product you buy is a choice. So you can choose to buy the non-recyclable packaging or recyclable packaging or compostable packaging. But likewise, you can choose to buy the organic, the non-GMO. You can choose to buy the no-till practice stuff. If you're willing to do the research on any of these things, then you can make choices on those. So you do have control in that you can choose to buy this conventional product, this whole foods type product, this organic product. Consumers are making choices every day that go all the way back to the farm. Because if they stop buying them, then people will stop doing those things. And the thing that they're buying more of will grow. So, you know, I feel like you shouldn't just scope it to what they see. Those things, they can see those other things if they take the time to do it. That's an idealist in me wishing that they would think about those things. They don't always, I get it, but that is in their control. And that always drives me a little bit nuts because I'm like, hey, you get to make these decisions every day. Yeah. And I think that's where we want consumers to get to is understanding slash realizing and taking advantage of their power over what they buy and how big of a difference that makes. And even the consumers who do want to make a difference and they do buy the organic or the climate neutral or whatever else, the tangible physical thing right in front of them still at the end of the day is the package. And I think that's what I'm getting at is it's it's much more in their face and direct compared to whether or not those farmers in South America are paid fairly, like that's not in their face. It'll probably never be in their face. But that package, (laughs) that's something they tangibly have to put in their hand and then put somewhere in some sort of other vessel. And that has a little bit more direct emotional connection for them. So we want to elevate them to care about the other stuff all across the world or on the farms or globally, but it's much easier for them to connect on that package, I think. No, and I definitely appreciate that. And as a consumer, it's how many of us have stood in front of one of those sort of garbage consoles that has like compost <laughs> and recycling and thing, and you're going, and you want to make the right choice, right? Like you're trying yeah. to figure out, okay, well, this has this and this, and manufacturers are the same in that we're trying to make the right decisions to give good options. But one of the things I think is helpful is if manufacturers can simplify information. So for example, if on the bag it says recyclable or compostable, that helps them to understand that side. Likewise, on the sustainability side, that's one of the reasons why we became a B Corp. Because these concepts that I'm talking around around sustainability are quite complicated and there's a million factors. And there is a lot of greenwashing that goes on. So you'll see a lot of claims that get put on packaging that don't really mean anything. They're kind of made up claims. And so we get frustrated as people that are trying to do a lot of good things. So I wanted to kind of elevate so that uh, B Corp could eventually become the kind of easy reference gold standard for consumers. They'd look at it, they go, oh, this is B Corp. Okay, I know it's okay. 
I don't have to look for these other claims. I can trust this one. And so the more of us that become it and the more of us that put that on our packaging, the more referential that can become for consumers. And that was one of the reasons why I signed on, not necessarily for us, but more because that means I'm one more person. And then the number of people that I can get to sign up and put it on their package, then it now becomes more something where consumers see a bit more and they're like, oh, maybe this is something I should be buying. I'm going to look for this on packages now. And so that's an easy reference for them to use. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I 100% agree that we need clarity or simplification for consumers. And there's so much information that they should or could be paying attention to. But when you have like 1.2 seconds to decide what you're putting in your cart on the shelf, which things are you paying attention to? So I agree. I'm also an advocate for slash hoping for B Corp becoming one of those easier symbols for them to just recognize that badge and know that they could dig into all the details, but at least from a high level perspective, that's probably a company doing their best to do the right things. For sure. So should we go down the packaging rabbit hole? Do you want to explore the pros and cons of that and what's different? Yeah, let's take into it a bit. Yeah, that topic comes up over and over and over again. And I often say that the most sustainable packaging is no packaging, of course, but you know that's not an option for a lot of food products because otherwise it can't get to the shelf or be on the shelf for somebody to grab it. So let's dive into that. For sure. I think first I would reiterate, you know, a big percentage of our business is in bulk food. So to some degree, that's, I'm going to not say it's not packaging because there is packaging. Like all food has to come in a package or else yeah. how is it going to get places, right? So the only way you can't do that is if it's in put in totes that then get sent back to the farm, which is pretty rare because those usually can't be sealed and you have to have product integrity. So, you know, even our bulk items come in paper bags or paper lined with plastic or cardboard boxes or boxes with plastic. So setting that aside for a second, that at least is direct from its farmer and all the farms we deal with, they process on site. So literally it's coming from them to our warehouse and going to the store. So direct from farm type service with minimal packaging that then gets put in a bin and people can bring it right home. So we get that that alone is a low packaging option. And we get that. And that's a big percentage of what we're trying to educate people on and talk about. When it comes to our own brand, say with Hippie Snacks, we've been around the horn on this one. We're on kind of round three right now of kind of looking at packaging. There's a bunch of rabbit holes around this that are problematic for people like us and for consumers if they do the research. So as you come into it, the first thing is to understand that all packaging essentially has is called laminate. So they take different materials and they laminate them together. So generally it'd be like two different types of plastics where they laminate them together. And the reason they do that is that a package has to have two elements. One, it has to be able to seal. So the bag around the edge has to be able to seal so that air can't get in because that will mean it goes rancid or product could leak out or something could get in there. So you have to have a seal The other thing you have to do is have barrier properties where air won't go through the actual package, not through like the seal, but through the package. So the inherent physics or chemistry of a barrier property versus a seal property are two different things. No material does both because inherently they're the opposite kind of. You've got to melt to create the seal. So essentially you take a seal barrier or a barrier property layer and a good seal layer and put them together and that's what a package is made out of. So that inherently, even when you see plastic, it's not one plastic, it's two different plastics. So if you're recycling it, you got to actually get those two apart. But if it's made properly, it's almost impossible to get apart because that means that they've done it right. So stuff can't get in there. 
So yeah. that's just step number one that nobody gets. Then let's go even further. So what are your options? You could do a really thick seal property layer. So one layer, really thick, or two layers of the same thing, really thick, that won't seal together very well, but it'll stop air getting through. So you're getting bad performance on either barrier or seal because of that. So you're going to have shorter shelf life, possible leakage, and it could be way thicker and you could be using way more material than you have to for the laminated materials. So you could do that, right? So that's one thing that some people have been doing. And you definitely have to sacrifice on product integrity. You have to use more material. And so our math says that doesn't necessarily go. Even if you did, now we're still with plastics and everyone does it perfect and they put it in their green bin. Actually, the soft one won't go in your green bin. It'll go in this recycling program at your drop-off depot. So you put it there. Well, those are all mixed with mixed materials. They also have different materials for zippers. Some will be metal laminate inside plastic laminate. All those are mixed. So even if you can get around that by having proper separation so that you get material with material, all the proper materials, or you get everyone that separates stuff, then the actual usage of that plastic about 90 to 95% of that plastic is actually just burned in the end. Even if it's wow. recycled perfectly, it all just goes and gets incinerated because it's a fuel. So I think everyone wants to think that it's turned into a fleece sweater or that way, but it's not. That's the reality. And I know because our family business plays in that space and the economics aren't there. So when you have the blue bin business, the only thing that the recycler can make money on and therefore puts focus on is metal and cardboard. Paper is very borderline. Plastic is a big money loser. Glass is a big money loser. So they don't put a lot of effort in that because there's not a lot of good end solutions for recycled plastic that has the economic gain. One quick question there, the difference between the paper and the cardboard. Can you explain that one? Well, cardboard being corrugated cardboard. So corrugated cardboard would be treated different because you can pulp that again. The fine paper, Mm -hmm. you can't pulp again. So you see corrugated is much more recyclable you see a ton of 100% recyclable cardboard. You can a little bit on paper, but the problem is then paper usually is like a million different colors, a million different inks. Cardboard's pretty clean. Usually it's the same color, same process, so it's easier to combine. Then people are like, okay, well, let's do compostable. Let's do biodegradable. So what are your options there? You can do a corn-based one, which A, all the corn-based options up until recently were GMO. Number two, they even if they're not GMO, generally they're way more expensive and not as good at performing. And up until recently, you couldn't get, say, the zipper. The package would be compostable, but not the zipper. Now you get the zipper, but now you're looking at, say, a regular package being like 15 cents. The compostable one will be about 50 to 60 cents, which you usually, that difference of 25 cents, you can multiply by that by three or four to get the impact on retail price. So you're adding a dollar to the retail price just by that one change. So there's the economics and the performance aspect of it. Then even setting that aside, on the compost side, most of these are not backyard compostable. They have to go into an industrial compost. So if they do go to industrial compost, I know this because also on the family business, we're in the compost industry. and We're one of the largest players in Canada. And so there's when you compost material, It's done over a period of months and usually you'll have piles and you'll turn them and cover it quite often. And then the end result, you're going to take that product and you have to sell that product, right? You have to get rid of that product. You'll get paid a little bit on the front end to take the compost and then you get paid a bit on the back end to sell that. And usually it'll be mixed with soils or used in landscaping, like there's a lot of volume there. 
And quite often that's municipal clients or provincial like government clients, like our parks. Mm -hmm. Those guys all have specs to their material. So you have to have a minimal amount of foreign material. Problem is that any compostable biodegradable packaging won't break down in time. So that's considered a contaminant, in which case they will never buy the end product. So your end product, if it has it in it, has to go to landfill. It's the only place it can go. Wow. So now people like us and a bunch of other people have spent a whole bunch of money at the front end of the composting operation, actually removing all the compostable bioplastics because they end up becoming contaminants at the end where you can't sell it. So even in places, and we're doing a big percentage of the volume on compost. So I'm laughing because I'm frustrated about this, not because I think <laughs> yeah. it's great. But plastic, the illusion of it being recycled or the illusion of it going into the compost things are false narratives. And so that's where it feels disingenuous to really go down that road. That's where I struggle. I'm like, wow, I'm going to spend a ton of money. I'm going to either destroy my margins or crank up the price for a poor performing product that will never get recycled or composted in the end anyway. So what yeah. the hell's the point? Yeah. And the sad thing is with all of that, that also, like you kept mentioning, assumes 100% compliance on the consumer side or whatever, that the thing ends up in the right place. But more often than not, that also doesn't happen. Then there's even other, and this is layers of onion, right? Then you look at other types of compostable because there's the corn-based ones, PLA it's called. And then there's quite often you'll have cellulose-based ones. So it either comes from trees, you have uh, sugar fiber ones, but let's talk about the cellulose to get that. So they take wood fiber and they break it down and then they've got to separate, I think the starches from the sugars. I'm trying to remember the process, but as we looked into it, it's really hard with cellulose to extract those. So they have to use a high, high chemical process that ends up being like, even if it was perfectly compostable, the end product, the process to get there is so net negative that it makes the overall thing way, 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 way worse. But nobody will go and look at that. And so I think that our problem is we ask too many questions. So then you go down (laughs) and you're like, oh, God, that seemed like an easy solution, but it actually isn't. And so this is where you kind of throw your hand in the air and go, okay, well, for now, let's just make sure that the packaging is as small as it can be and then fits as tightly in the box as it can and that we minimize packaging where we can. And let's dig into like the 42 other things that can actually have impact. So this is the conundrum that we're in. And I'm like, I feel bad. Like, I feel like here we are, this sustainable business that really cares about it. And on the surface, it looks like we don't give a shit. When all we truly do, we're not doing it because we actually do care and we don't want to be greenwashing or faking it. And yet you saw how long it took for me to describe even this simple aspect of it. <laughs> not like you can throw that on your package and explain that to people. Yeah, depends on how much space you have in your package. But that's why with some of our clients who want to be in sustainable packaging, but there's just no option for them right now. We like to put a little note next to like a crossed out recycling symbol or whatever that says not recyclable yet. Sorry, we're working on it or something like that. So people don't think, oh, this brand lives up to all these things, but they can't figure out recyclable packaging. It's just the simplest way possible to let consumers know that you do care and it is a thing that you're working on. But then also I think the how to recycle system or something like that, that's just helping consumers understand so that they're not, what's it called, wish cycling or something like that, where they're just like, well, oh, this might be recyclable, so I'm just going to throw it in there anywhere. This might be compostable. But if you're just very clear about whether or not it is, then at least you're solving one other problem is hoping that it gets in the right place. 
Yeah, I'm in a working group right now of a bunch of sort of small and medium food processors in mostly in BC. And we're trying to talk this through on little things like, hey, let's actually get the pure apples to apples comparison of all the different options on packaging so that we can make an educated choice because all the data is not apples to apples. So let's actually understand which one is the best, making certain assumptions. And how can we, as food processors, could we combine with other people to lobby to help to eventually create those end user markets? Because that's what's going to drive it, is end user market for either compost that has some of that particulate in it, or products made from recycled plastic that can align and make the economics work of that. Until that happens, I think it's all just a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, and I think the clients that we have through Modern Species that are investing in compostable packaging, I think they're doing it for those reasons. They know the odds are stacked against them at the moment, but but they're investing in it to hope that other brands will invest in it to reduce the cost of entry into compostable to make more incentives for commercial composting facilities to take it and figure out a good use for it and so on and so forth. But it's it's a long road, you know, it's a difficult choice to make when you know it's maybe not the most sustainable thing right now, but maybe in 20 years it could be. Yeah, and we, I think one of these things, sometimes we care too much when you're trying to lead in some of these fields, people will challenge mm-hmm. you, which I love, right? I love that consumers have way more power than they ever have. The danger to that is that you better know what you're talking about and be intentional about what you're doing so you can answer their questions or concerns with integrity. So, you know, I think that's why I talk about we want to know which one actually has the best footprint so that when somebody says, why did you choose this? Why aren't you doing this? That we have a clear answer that's succinct instead of our buddy down the road that makes product said it was a good option and the vendor said it was the best option. I don't know why. They just said it was good. You know, we actually want to have the answers. That takes time, and especially when you're a small business. Like I had a one interesting thing that happened to us. For example, we had a coconut cluster product that we sold at Starbucks and it sold all across North America. And we had a consumer write us a really kind of, you know, a bit of a nasty gram, right? She was quite upset. She's like, hey, I read all about you guys. I love what you're about. I love your products. Love where you're focusing. But she's like, it's all bull because you've got a desiccant in here. You know, you'll have a thing that will absorb moisture to make sure your product stays crispy. So our desiccant was in the, the bag. And we bought it from a company and she said, do you know anything about this company? Because they are a horrible company that's doing this and this and this and this. And so we get this email. I was like, is there any truth to this? So we researched it and we're like, oh my God, we don't want to be associated with these guys at all. So I wrote back to her and I was like, I tried to say like, one of the things is that we're not perfect and we never will be. We have within this business, you know, 40 people associated with hippie snacks of which only 15 or 20 are in the office. So we have to pick our battles on what things we research. So, you know, we researched, okay, is this the best packaging option? You know, where's the food grown? What's the proper recipe? You know, what's the farmer source? How do they treat their workers? You know, we're trying to research all these things that, you know, according to our percentages matter. And we'd never bothered to research this company that sells us the desiccant. So I wrote back and I was like, this is what I like. I appreciate that you're raising this to us. And So effective immediately, we're not going to buy from them ever again. You're going to see a bit of the stuff that's in the inventory flow through, but you'll never see that desiccant in our packaging again. But you got to know sometimes that companies don't always have the time to research every little thing. And this was such a small piece of the product that we hadn't done it. 
And so yeah. it's just always a learning process. And I think that if consumers and companies work together, it'll always keep you better. You know, we've all had that really positive experience with a company where we've complained and you're like, oh my God, they heard me. They're changing things. That's great. So yeah. I just always try to remind people like, just keep positive that way. That's all about transparency these days and being willing to have those conversations, like you said, because consumers are going to find out. They're gonna, somebody out there is going to know just enough to raise a flag about it. So like, don't try to hide those things or talk around them, but address them honestly, openly, and be willing to change. And I think that that, in my mind, is better than being perfect because you're creating a relationship with the consumer. Like if you're perfect and you never do anything wrong and the consumer never has any reason to engage with you, they might be less of a brand advocate than if they brought something up to you and you changed. Like now they're going to be your champion. And when, you know, I think a lot of people can do sustainability initiatives when it saves them money. It's when it actually costs them something or they have to make sacrifices for it to happen where the rubber really hits yeah. the road. So like, for example, it turns out that that desiccant was actually the cheapest desiccant. So now we're paying more for desiccants, but I'm okay with that. I'm like, what's that half cent? Who cares when it's our integrity in line here? And mm -hmm. same with as a distributor, Left Coast Naturals, the distribution part of our business, you know, we moved about, uh, I want to say eight, nine years ago to become a non-GMO distributor. So we had to go through our entire catalog and do audits on all of them. And, and it was still fairly early days on the non-GMO project and some of the, ver there's an NSF stamp now on the, on the actual verification systems and accreditations. And so we had to do a lot of the research ourselves. And, and in the end, we had to end up dropping a bunch of products. So we probably gave up, I don't know, three, 400 grand in business, but we were like, we put the line in the sand and this is what we think is important. And so, and you hope that the reputational aspect and the integrity and just by doing that, you motivate others to do it. And, you know, so there's a bit of that leadership aspect that comes with it. But, you know, I think that's also part of what I said to you before. We don't have to impress shareholders or do anything. We can just do the right thing and be okay with the results that come from it. Yeah. And sometimes those tough decisions actually have a ripple effect. And I'm curious to know if that decision to drop some of those products, did they go out and become non-GMO just to stay in distribution with you? Well, we did actually get a whole bunch that were GMO that we got to transition to GMO. I wouldn't say they did it 100% because of us, but were we part of, maybe we were the tipping point on that one? Maybe. I'd hope yeah. we were. So definitely we were able to transition a whole bunch of people over there. It also, we do a survey with our customers, our retailers, and it's one of the, you know, we'd said, what are some of the things you like about us the most? And, and that really, after we made this change, that really shone highly up on their radar and that they really appreciated it. And they kind of felt like, hey, we can trust these guys. They're going to vet the products for anything and everything before it comes to us. And so, you know, it's a pretty good thing to be a trusted source. That's a standard that a lot of distributors would look for. Yeah, that's great. We do that with all the products we distribute, right? So we, we do a whole sustainability scoring system and we do a market scoring system. So that's a fair bit of work and questions and research that instead of just going, do we like this product or not? We actually put it through a bunch of stuff. So, you know, as I've said before, we never make our life easy, but you know, <laughs> all the good stuff isn't easy. Yeah. The hard path is the more rewarding path. And like you've mentioned a bunch of times now, the sustainability path is more difficult because there's just so many things you need to look into, which is why when other designers ask me for like the one piece of advice I would give a younger designer wanting to be more sustainable is just be curious because I can't sit here and teach you all the different things and nobody is going to because it's difficult 
But if you're just curious, like, hey, what happens to this thing after it leaves my hand or what happens to this thing after the consumer's done with it or do these inks make a difference in the compostability? You know, if you just have those questions flowing through your mind, you will hopefully then seek out answers and make better decisions in the end. So I love your focus on just asking too many questions at times because that's the path to finding the answers. You don't always get the answer you want. but <laughs> Yeah, like we had it, for example, we were non-GMO and then we found out that the nutritional yeast we had in a product was non-GMO, but then the yeast is grown on a medium. They feed off that medium. So it turns out that the medium was a GMO corn. So then we're uh-huh. like, okay, so how far do we go down this rabbit hole? So then does that make it GMO, even though when they test it, you don't see any. And so, you know, once again, we ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I appreciate about you, though, is that you're a realist, of course, like you're, you're willing to say like, look, sustainable packaging is just a deep well of no answers, really. But I also appreciate that you're an optimist, and <laughs> you keep trying. So with that balance, which is the balance I like to keep as well, what do you see as the future for your businesses, as well as for our industry and society as a whole? Do you have any big dreams or hopes for what we can achieve? For sure. I mean, I think there's a continuum that we're on around eating. You know, if you think about how people ate in, you know, the 70s and 80s and you compare it today, I think that there's been a vast improvement around percentage of organic, around percentage of processed foods, around kind of the revitalization of the perimeter of the store, right? Like there's way more perimeter shopping where it's more fresh food, even most diets tend to lead that way. It's chunky, right? Like it it comes in awkward changes, right? Like some people will debate the plant-based movement right now because it has a high percentage of more heavily processed product, but at the same time, it's getting people to challenge the way they think. And so I do feel that we're heading in the right direction over the last 20 years on how people eat, the types of foods they focus on, what they put in their body. I think that there's way better focus around societal impact and considering the full scope of sustainability. There's way more impact on consumers being able to have a say and what goes on either through social media or posting or people get wronged. It can get out there. And I think that's great because it keeps, you know, hopefully the honest companies win then. And so I like that direction. I feel like that kind of levels the playing field a little bit. So I think there's a lot of good movement there. And I actually, you know, despite my commentary about packaging, I think there will be end solutions. I'm an optimist that there will be. That's why we're on our third round of checking now, because every two years, we're like, okay, maybe something good's come up. Like it's going to happen. We know it. And so I do want to keep being optimistic that that will be. The one thing I haven't mapped out in my head is whether we'll go from kind of a global food economy to back to a regional. I'm trying to get that mapped in my head. I think in some ways... It's good in that we're growing food where it grows most efficiently. And so that's good for yield for people and that you can eat those things properly. Because, for example, like I want to buy all local for our business, but most of the food that we make our products out of. So, you know, if it's almonds or avocados or quinoa or none of those can grow in the BC climate, right? It's just not the right climate. And so I don't know how far we can go on that side of things. But I do like that people are looking into where food comes from. I think there's going to be a bit of a renaissance back to kind of the whole canning food over the winter and some of those sort of things, like just trying to preserve 
things because that's going to come to a natural side of things. So yeah, I'm really happy about the eating and dietary and recognition of societal impacts. So yeah, I'm really optimistic it's going that way. It's just like I say, when it goes like this, it depends where you are on that thing. You may be in a down cycle and feel, oh, darn it, nothing's happening. But the pattern is good. Yeah, even with this global pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there's so many young people coming into our, I can only speak for our industry because I know it's so much better on the organic and natural food industry side, but all industries are definitely seeing a new generation that's bringing the importance of what a company means and what their products are. They're bringing that. It's the first and only question that matters to them in an interview, right? They want to work for businesses that they can be proud of. They don't want to like work themselves to a bone for somebody that doesn't care. And so that forces companies to change too. Yeah, absolutely. And that ties back to hopefully the increasingly growing B Corp movement as well. Hopefully that more and more consumers will be aware of that, but also it becomes like a badge of a good place to work too. Yeah. It's a pretty common question in interviews for sure. Like, or I'll say, Hey, what are you interested about our business? And they're like, well, I saw your B Corp. So I'm amazed how many people look at it. It really makes me happy to hear that. Yeah, that's great. Well, awesome. I appreciate that you're out there helping the industry continue to evolve and that you're staying curious and continuing to look for solutions. And I too am optimistic that we'll find a way. It's just, you know, we've got to deal with some sticky, complex systems, but nature and humans seem to find a way at times. We just need to be pointed in the right direction. So <laughs> so we'll get there somehow. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us on the show and sharing some of your wisdom. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, and thanks for having me. And I really appreciate you doing this show in general, you know, to get these conversations out there and get people thinking and, and considering things. So thank you for doing that and honoring me by having me on the show. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Gage. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Ian or his companies, go to leftcoastnaturals.com or hippiesnacks.com. H-I-P-P-I-E. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve at modernspecies.com and learn about our new online community for brand leaders at evolvecpg.com. See you next week.